You are listening to Go Doc Yourself, your weekly documentary book club. Listen in while we two errands dissect our most recent documentary find. Sometimes weird, sometimes mainstream, but always entertaining. Grab a cup of coffee and let's clutch. Hi, and welcome to Go Doc Yourself. I am Erin McCart. And I'm Erin McCourt. Welcome back this week as we keep it light and not quite so nightmarish. This week we're covering Street Gang, how we got to Sesame Street, which was delightful. I really enjoyed it too. Again, a quick thanks to Shazia who led us to this gym. We did not know about it. Super cute. And I really enjoyed it as well. It's on HBO Max. It was done in 2021, an hour and 46 minutes long, and directed by Marilyn Angelo. Let me ask you, did you grow up watching Sesame Street? I did. Uh, I was not allowed to watch Sesame Street growing up. My mom thought they were rude, so apparently it was uh, (laughs) Captain Kangaroo for me. That's what it was. (laughs) Do you know what the context was for her thinking they were rude? I asked her, I'm like, was it just like Oscar the Grouch or something? She's like, no, I thought all of them were rude. And maybe she just watched one episode or one clip and she was like, this is horrible and had a global takeaway from that. Well, my kids, I let my kids watch Sesame Street. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. not like we watch it every day, but I think most of what I think of as Sesame Street is from when my oldest especially was younger. So I don't see what my mom apparently saw, but you know what? We all got our thing. So it'd be interesting to understand a little bit more about if she could give you some specifics on like, she just saw an interaction where they like cut each other off or something. I don't know. Like speaking wise, or cut each other up. I don't know. <laughs> well, if she heard our podcast, she'd be like, you are also rude because you guys won't quit talking over each other. We are. <laughs> I, I think that's probably why I grew up to be such a horrible person. It's because I didn't get to watch Sesame Street growing up. I hope she's happy with herself. So 1981 is where we open New York city. And they're on the set of Sesame Street and they've got the puppeteers going and the headsets. I never really considered how this was made. It was fascinating to watch them. So imagine all the sets are like above your head and Mm -hmm. your puppets are your arm and your hand. And that's how they do it. And then they have the headsets on. So the puppeteers are also doing the voices. And I thought like, oh my God, I've. I'm just now starting to live. I did not understand that they were doing that. <laughs> I'd never thought about it. Yeah, it was really cool. It is cool. And later they described how you as a puppeteer have to watch the screen. So you see what's being filmed. So you can, what do they say? Kind of mark it off. Make sure you're in the right place. Make sure that you're doing everything correctly. I think that would be so much more difficult than just, I don't know, acting a part. It just seems incredibly difficult right so it's almost like a mirror image right and you're having to adjust your acting or whatever to that you don't have an x on the floor that Mm -hmm. you're trying to hit you're trying to hit an x on the screen that's just right kind of there you know like you're just supposed to know where that's at the timing and they all had to be lined up and doing it correctly was pretty Mm -hmm. awesome also they had outtakes and oh my god i laughed (laughs) my favorite so hard (laughs) And they're yeah. cussing and stuff. And I was like, oh, oh, I loved it. It was so cute. <laughs> to watch Grover. Grover's always been my favorite. He always makes me laugh. It's I the don't voice, know what it right? Is about him. Yeah. yeah. But to watch him say, damn it. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> stop it, Grover. Stop it. Yeah, that was my favorite part. I would buy an entire video of Sesame Street outtakes. Honestly, I'd pay good money. Maybe I'll that. put that out on the interwebs when I post about this because I too would be like, you know what this rainy day needs? <laughs> Some outtakes of Sesame Street. Oh. Or The Muppet Show. Either one will do. I don't remember Kermit being in it a lot or some of those, like, I guess mm-hmm. I think of, like, the Fozzie and the, you know, that. Big Bird. and mm-hmm. Yeah, that, like, the Muppets being separated. And I just don't remember there being a ton of overlap with this. So that thought that was kind of interesting, too. There was a ton. One statistic they put out early on, as they said, on an average day, over 12 million kids under the age of six watch Sesame Street. That's huge. This is not commercial television. Right. And they talk about what TV was for kids before this, kind of the revolution this caused. It was completely different than anything anybody else was doing. And I was like, of course, Jim Henson's definitely involved in this. Mm -hmm. His voice, every time he wasn't in character, I was like, no. 
This is not right. <laughs> I know. Sir, you sound just like Kermit. Just put the Muppet up and let us listen to Kermit. Talk. Right. Yeah. I. It was really hard to separate. Is it kind of like watching Seth? What's his name? Who does like Family Guy and that? Oh, uh, McFarland? Yes. And so whenever you hear him talk, I'm like, I just hear Brian. That's all I hear. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. I love it so much. But I liked they kind of introduced John Stone was the writer, director. Um, they kind of portray mm-hmm. him as the soul of the show. The lady who got this all going, her name is Joan Cooney. She was like the executive producer and kind of brought all these cats together. The pictures of her looking really smart in all her business wear. And I mean, you know what I mean? She just, (laughs) she was so cool. And it was, even that was revolutionary that there was a lady that was going to be in charge of this gigantic project. Right. That was cool. So Mm -hmm. it was really neat. I like how they have John Stone's daughters on and they were Kate and Polly and they had been on Sesame Street. So there, there's video of them later, like interacting with Grover and that. And it's, it's adorable. The little kid peels of laughter was so neat. Yeah. It's funny. And so they talk about how their dad was, you know, kind of an activism, but mm-hmm. he was done with television. He's like, listen, I've done everything I, I can do until he got a call from Joan telling him about what she wanted to do, how she wanted to target any inner city kids because of how much television they watched. And she wanted to make it a learning environment for them. And he was like, all right, cool. I'm on board. I liked the fact that they were really aligned in what they thought television could do, right? So they got all these people together who thought, okay, television could be an educational tool for all kinds of kiddos. It doesn't have to be just garbage. I think we're still fighting that battle now. (laughs) There's a lot of garbage out there. Yeah. So John was, you know, kind of in an advocate's heart. He was a really empathetic person. He and Joan were talking and she evidently was an incredibly charming lady, but she had a lot of aligned political views with what John wanted to do and they meshed together really nicely. Joan mentioned that actually how this all got started although she's kind of the face of it. Lloyd, what is his last name? I have Morissette. Lloyd Morissette. Thank you. Again, my handwriting because I didn't have my computer answer. So (laughs) (laughs) so bad. Lloyd Morissette, he was the co-founder of the Children's Television Network but he was a psychologist at the Carnegie Foundation. They were studying the gap in education for, say, inner city schools, public schools, predominantly brown kids, right? And it's not necessarily a race thing as much as a socioeconomic thing. They saw that these kids starting school were about three months behind. And then once they got to the end of first grade, they're almost an entire year behind. Yep. And that just progresses, right? Yeah, it is cumulative. They don't really ever seem to be able to make it up. They're trying right. to find a way to fix that. Right, to help, right? These these kids' parents, they have to work. The kids, and we've discussed this on other episodes, that when both parents are working, this is kind of the first time this has happened mm-hmm. everywhere. And so daycare isn't as predominant of a thing. It's kind of everything's new. So these kids are at home on their own watching TV. And what they're watching is trash, unfortunately, because that's what's on TV. It's not like there were any other options at the time. Right. They have some statistics. So the kids are watching three to five hours per day. So that's 54 hours per week. So they're like, we really have an opportunity here. Maybe we could make a difference. I also like the fact that Lloyd talks about TV really resonates with kids. They show a lot of singing beer commercials and they're very catchy tunes. Of course, you know, we've long talked about marketing works because you know they understand how your brain retains things and so you know they do that Mm -hmm. but these little kids singing like bush lights beer ads and stuff like that so yeah it's disturbing but also you're kind of understanding the power of television and exposure and well and lloyd lloyd takes us to his co-workers essentially like hey can we use tv to help i love how he's like these academics they wanted nothing to do with tv they didn't even own them in their homes they're just too good for it they just couldn't possibly But he knew it could make a difference. So he was at a dinner party one night, was talking to Joan, who he knew was a producer, and she loved it. She jumped on board and got got the ball rolling. To the tune of $8 million from the National Office of Education. Right. Government. Government funded. The idea is that they'll have 130 hours of 
whatever project, I don't think Sesame Street was in thus named, but the project started and that's what they were gearing up for is 132 or 130 hours per year. I mean, that mm-hmm. seems like a lot. It really does. If you think about most, I mean, cause they, they put out a new episode like every day, they probably had a season, right? But if five days a week, you're putting out an hour long episode, there are no commercials. This is a legit, well, maybe 40, 50 minutes. Cause they usually advertise at the end, like, please give to public broadcasting, but still, That's a lot. There's a ton. A lot of work. Sharon Lerner, she's brought on board. She's a research and curriculum coordinator. It seems that there are about 10 people in the children's TV workshop at this point. They are educators and TV producers. And I like that John Stone, and I said begats Jim Henson, because I always like the way, (laughs) that's the best way to say, like, I know a guy who would be perfect for this or like a lady or whatever. And so when Joan sees Jim for the first time, he's kind of hanging out in the corner of the room where they're all chit-chatting and he's got like a real hippie vibe going on. And I'm like, hell yeah, he does right. like long hair and a beard and all this. It's like some rando hippie just walked into the room and started hanging out. You so know? that's how they were introduced. <laughs> but a pairing that's just legendary from that time on. One of the things that Sharon had talked about, because she has a master's in educational psychology. And so what they did that was really kind of revolutionary was get educators in the same room as like the writers and producers. So the educators were like, this is what you need to do for kids. They need to learn this, these things, and this is how they need to learn and how you need to get it there. And so for the writers, they had to incorporate all of that and still make it entertaining. Difficult because It has to be done in such a way that you can retain a little bit, right? So they're chopping it up into small, translatable bites. For kids who can't read, that's one thing. Like, they're teaching them letters and numbers if you've seen any Sesame Street. I mean, do you think there's anybody that hasn't seen some Sesame Street in the world? I'm sure that there are. I can't imagine. Even if you haven't seen it, you know what it is. You know what it's about, I would think. Do you think that... Uh, the scientific community could benefit from a Sesame Street-like production of how to make a slide for a meeting presentation because they don't cram as much as humanly possible on that slide. They're just going to put up the main points, just kind of mm-hmm. drill down. That's just a bullet point. <laughs> it's just a, lines and lines of text on a tiny slide, just saying. I think if, say, organic chemistry was presented in a song and dance format yes. like Sesame Street, I would have retained a lot more. Love it. Just saying. A, another Henson who is someone involved. <laughs> yes. A family member. <laughs> um, talking about the... Mo- <laughs> Her cousin twice removed. <laughs> like, whoever they could get, right? They're like, Psh, documentaries. <laughs> uh, nobody's going to watch that. <laughs> They're talking about Muppets doing the late night circuit. It was so funny to watch the punniness. And it just made my heart so happy that they're doing these like really quippy little things. On the late night circuit. And variety shows. It made me think of, do you remember The Simpsons started out as like a little blurb on like the Tracy Ullman show or something, right? So it was just a, (laughs) yeah, it was a tiny little like thing they would show and then it became like this big thing. So it's interesting that this kind of started the same way. But what I loved was seeing the commercials they did. Oh, those were so good. So good. Again, just super punny and like kind of cheesy, but I, it's so (laughs) cute. I also like the fact that the kids, Jim Henson's kids, (laughs) that the kids at school felt sorry for them because they're like, your dad's a puppeteer or whatever. And I was like, fucking kids. (laughs) I thought they did what? Like children's birthday parties and church puppets and shit. Right. And they're like, if only you could be as famous as Lamb Chop or whatever. I'm just kidding. But I think that puppet did make us, like, they did put that puppet on the screen of the documentary but I was just cracking they up did. Just, kids were giving her shit about her dad's job <laughs> he's cool I promise he's cool yeah so these commercials like had dark humor which was also really funny yeah again you kind of come back to what Sesame Street's trying to do or what the children's tv workshop is trying to do and they have these kid focus groups and so they're trying to mix in what the Muppets are doing and what the educators want to happen. And like they have film strip distraction technique. And if the kids are paying more attention to the film strip versus what's being shown to them on TV, then they know that they're not on the right vein and they kind of correct goddamn psychology experiments, trying to get stuff. I mean, I mean, how do you get (laughs) a three or a five-year-old to give you 
any pertinent information. Again, these people are genius. Right. Do you think those film clips had um, like horrible, like worms coming in eyes? You know, you always see those really bad examples. When you're learning how to drive and they're like, roadside accidents. You know, it's that's what I think of film scripts anymore. <laughs> yeah, they also had, so they would show bits and then they would talk to the kids about what did they retain. They really, before they even started, talked to kids about what they liked, what they wanted to see, and kind of worked with them to see how they would learn and then built on that. And then every time they got more information, they could kind of modify that. One thing that I thought was really interesting that they said was that they treated the show and the snippets like commercials. They were kind of small, little broken up bits, like you said, and they treated it like a commercial because, as you said, they they retain that information, right? That the jingles and all that, and they were selling them the alphabet, right? They were selling them numbers. That was a unique approach. Right. This is really marketed, geared towards how children learn. They don't have a, a giant mm-hmm. attention span. And I just thought that was so interesting and unique to watch how they built the process of teaching these kids. Also, they have Rolf on there, which I was dying laughing. Again, they keep introducing these Muppets and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. It was, it's adorable. <laughs> they're trying, they're, their focus group here is kind of the inner city black community. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of thought around how are we going to, what is the setting of this, of our show going to be? They were talking about the current shows are like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's a house or it's a castle. Suburban areas. It's sort of these fantasy almost settings. And they were looking for something that would be more realistic for kids. It just so Mm -hmm. happened that John Stone saw the Urban Coalition commercial that provided the inspiration and it's called send your kids to the ghetto. That was sort of the message. And so it takes, <laughs> it takes place like in the inner city streets and like on a doorstep with the stairs mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, Eureka, that's it. That's what we're going to go with. And I think he had a little bit of a hard time mm-hmm. selling it. Cause it was like, how are we going to pull this off? Right. And they did it. So you're looking mostly when you watch Sesame street, other than the clips and things like that, where the Muppets are, the inner city street front steps of a house. That's kind of the overall setting. Now there's like a tire swing and there's like Mm -hmm. several different settings, but it's all based on it. Like kind of a part of a street of a neighborhood. Right. Of a neighborhood. Right. So you have the stoop and then you have a little shop and then you have a little area. Yeah. 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 Um, Can we talk about Frank? Is it Biondo? I think he was the cameraman. This cat was only on for a short period of time. Right. I mean, he, he, in the documentary, he, said that he was camera number one based on Mr. Hooper shop, which is funny. He sounds like what everyone sounds like when they're trying to do a New York accent. 100%. Oh, <laughs> I, can we just have him narrate the whole thing? It was hilarious. He's like <laughs> right. this kind of old right. grizzled dude. And he's just like, it's, it was glorious. Yeah. He's like, what are you talking about? So they go and do a shoot on 81st street. That's where it started off real life action. They decide that they're going to have to blend the sets because the kids want all the Muppets that are not really as interested in what's going on with the other characters on the street bits. Mm-hmm. So they have to kind of integrate that. So right. it kind of flows a little bit better, at least from the kids point of view. So I thought that was really cute too. Probably a lot more difficult. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause they, yeah, I imagine so. Well, they had, yeah, they had it separate. Like this is the, the street bit. And these mm-hmm. are the Muppet bits and kids are like, fuck the street, man. We just want the Muppets. Yo, these are, yeah, these are three to mm-hmm. five-year-olds. They don't care about adults. They see them all the time. So, but Muppets. One, yes, it would be very difficult to integrate the two. But they did a very good job with it. But I think it's funny that they talk about the kids, even if they're on scene with the Muppets, they don't see, even though even though they can physically see the person doing the work, they are interacting with the Muppet like it's a real thing. Yeah, they did such a good job of capturing the kids' imaginations that they 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 really did. They they interacted with these characters like they were real. It's amazing. So Evelyn Davis worked to do the outreach program. They got the word out at like different daycares at the YMCA, at schools and everything, just to kind of let everyone know this is what's coming, this is what it's for. And she did a great job. November 1969, the U.S. Office of Education introduces Sesame Street. It's kind of weird if you think about it, right? Well, I mean, think about it too. Like, 
there was a Reagan promo for this. He's talking about this. Yeah, I don't think they ever showed it, but you could hear his voice. And unfortunately, like, that's burned into my memory. And I mean, the government put a lot of money towards this. So it makes sense to me that they're going to get a plug in. So and I can imagine as as an educator, you would be excited about a free resource that may help you out Mm -hmm. in the long term with with the youngins. I thought it was really cool. Now they're starting to show I think the premiere was did you say November 1969? Yep. And they show that pinball animation. Are you shitting me? It is it made me so happy. And it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I was like jamming and the kids were like, Are you okay? You feel all right? What are we watching here? I, I, I know I kind of want to go watch it now and see if they still have that real funky yeah, feel it is, to it. It's so hip. Even twenty years ago it did. Yeah. And you can't help but kind of jam along. And then they show a very young James Earl Jones reading some stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm like who knew that he was one ever young and two attractive? What? He's striking. <laughs> Grace Slick seeing some stuff in there. I had no idea. And then I liked that they talk about the lady who plays Maria and I have her name somewhere. Sonia Manzano. I just wrote Maria in quotes mm-hmm. at this part. She sees it <laughs> when she's at school in college and her college friends are sitting around mm-hmm. watching this new funky thing and they're all like, what is this? And I just thought I was like, you know, it's good <laughs> when you have caught the attention of surly teens and early 20s. You know what I mean? I just thought that was really cool. It, yeah, it was. I mean, it's it's the late 60s. They could have all been on drugs, <laughs> but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say they were just entertained. <laughs> Well, let's be honest, that shit, some of it was real trippy. Yeah. So they did like a tour the first year. So they kind of went out on tour to see how it was being received, as it were. Someone described Mm -hmm. it as Woodstock for kids. These kids went crazy. It's amazing. They talk about, or they talk to about, I don't know, Bob McGrath, (laughs) who was one of the hosts. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know which He's Bob on the show. Yes. Thank you. And then I just did a little list of all the rest that I remembered. So there's Susan and there's Gordon. And of course there's Mr. Hoover because he has the store. Yeah. That they have all these celebrity endorsements and performers. They have Odetta Holmes. She's singing on the show. Stevie Wonder's another that is on the show. But there are others like um, Muhammad Ali just talks about it like on a talk show or something like that so Mm -hmm. it's really funny to see you know like you're talking about the live version and how well that's being received but this is getting nods everywhere it's huge right i think that's really cute you're talking about famous people some of the others they had bb king singing the alphabet that's crazy loretta lynn johnny cash was singing with oscar the grouch james taylor dizzy gillespie for fuck's sake I know. And you're just like, this is like a little time capsule. It had everybody. And right. It's so amazing. Mm-hmm. They show an award show. They did, I didn't catch what it was. Was it a Grammy? Is it a... I didn't either. I'm assuming it was a Grammy since it's television. Okay. But... That's kind of what I thought, too. They are announced, at least, and received the award from Carol Brady. <laughs> <That's kind of laughs> Go Mama Brady. And then we kind of talked about Matt Robinson, who is the gentleman that plays Gordon. Before he got this gig, he's he's called the Black Johnny Carson. <laughs> it's like, okay. I mean, it was really funny. Right. And that show he was on was called Black Book. They talked a little bit about it, but I didn't get a ton of background on him. He was, again, another guy that had some forward, like he was progressive political views. And he mm-hmm. liked the fact that Sesame Street was an, a vehicle to reach inner city kids on their level to show positive role models and stuff like that. And it was really cool. Well, I thought it was funny because they talked to his kids, one of which is Holly Robinson, Pete from 21 jump street. Yo. Yeah. That's his daughter. And then Matt Robinson jr. Was his son, but they were Mm -hmm. talking about what a big deal it was that their dad was on this show and the show was huge, but then also it was early enough on and they were young enough that they're like, okay, one, how did he get in the box? And two, yeah. why is he holding that other girl's little hand? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that yeah. was funny too. It's like really surreal that their dad was on TV and they just really didn't understand it. And they are talking about the interaction. Like, and they're both like, this was dumb. Why is dad on TV or whatever? But they didn't understand what it was. 
It was really cute. Part of what he brought, so Sesame Street, as the target demographic being inner city black children, they did a pretty good job of really integrating, making sure they had people from different backgrounds on the show. And I don't know if mm-hmm. you noticed that most of the Muppets are all different colors. It, it, even if they're just yes. people and not animals, they're really weird colors, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is really nice. And they never really talk about it. Someone had asked about it, John Stone, in an interview. He's like, it's something we don't really talk about, but we show it. It's it. They just make it like a slice of everyday life. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to... I don't know. They have to, they don't have to congratulate themselves for it. It's always right. kind of the vibe that you come off uh, come over with. One of the one of the interesting things though is that Matt Robinson mm-hmm. wanted to make a brown Muppet because mm-hmm. even though on the show you could say everyone's the same, in reality, brown kids are brown kids, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. he wanted to make sure that he had a Muppet kind of representing them and saying it's cool to be a black kid it's cool to be this way roosevelt franklin was his character's name i think that's such a cool name but he wanted them to be recognized as they are unfortunately there was a lot of backlash from other black parents saying that they didn't like that he was being stereotypically black or speaking in a specific way which is unfortunate and so they pulled the character you know, despite the message that he was trying to get out, the school is cool, and he was trying to work some of those things in there. He did come across, according to some people, as almost too black, and he kind of fell off the map. It didn't seem like something that they talked about. It just went away. Mm-hmm. And then Matt ends up leaving shortly after because he's like, Man, this is just not matching up with my vision of what I want this character to be and what I want my character right. to be. So um, they kind of parted ways after that. Because of that integrated cast, we have issues in places like Mississippi. Shock. Awe. And it's really dumb because it's among the poorest states. They probably could have used an extra resource even though the Mississippi Authority for Educational TV, this douchebag named William Smith, they won't show it because of the integration. And they won't come out and just say that. It's just like, well, we asked some parents and some parents were pro and some were not and blah, blah, blah. But then they have some cool cats like a guy named Bog McRaney, who is, I don't know, the programming director or the president or something mm-hmm. of one of the M- NBC affiliates in Jackson. Mm-hmm. And he airs it. And I was like, well... Yeah. If you're not going to air it on public television, bitch, we're going to air it on commercial television for freeze. Eventually the public TV caves and they do start to put it on because, and then they have this interview with these kids and they <laughs> are so cute and they have the most Southern accent yes. of all time. Yes. Um, and they're like, well, I really like Sesame Street and it was adorable. And they're just with sweet little baby faces. And they, yeah, they were able to see it. And I, I thought know. that was really cute. So it's a, a great example of somebody being a dick, somebody else saying a no, and then kids enjoying themselves and learning a little something. That's just that those mm-hmm. kids who cracked me up. The is so strong. <laughs> you could hardly even understand her. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, good for you, little kid. We talk about the Muppets being a big part of the show. The two main mm-hmm. cats who are doing these Muppets are Jim Henson and Frank Oz. They're hilarious. I mean, if you see the outtakes of these guys, they're so funny together. And they it just seems like they right. like, okay, listen, you have to talk about the letter A, make it happen, and they just ad lib. I don't know how that works. I- A lot of the interactions they're showing are these guys doing Bert and Ernie. And Henson is Ernie, and Frank Oz is Bert. And I think that Bert, let's just call it out, has the most famous unibrow in TV yes. history. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say it right now. He's so curmudgeonly, and I love him so much. <laughs> Yeah, and they're they're roommates. I mean, they're just, (laughs) I mean, I don't know, a Muppet version of the odd couple. I'm not really sure, but they (laughs) they play off each other so well. And if somebody makes a mistake, they're like, that didn't make sense in the context of this conversation. And they just (laughs) grill each other. It's hysterical. Yeah. I love that. They're like, I thought you would have helped me, but no, here we are. And you're like, that's the work relationship I want to be a part of. Like, yep. This is the stuff that does not go right. And they just keep going. And I loved it. Fran Brill, who is another puppeteer, she was like a part-time actress in that. She sees an ad to train as a puppeteer. Mm-hmm. 
because they were doing all of the voices, including female voices. So I think people are like, listen, you need to get actual women in here to do the women bits. I mean, this isn't the 1800s where women aren't allowed on stage. That's what I was thinking, too. I was like, <laughs> harken back to Shakespeare in Love when they won't let any of the women <laughs> do the little lady acting. And so she yeah. was like, I had no idea. And um, her training and she was like, it's really, really difficult. And once I saw it. I was like, oh my God, I had no idea how complex and the timing that you have to have. I mean, there's no really looking at a prompter or whatever. It just didn't seem like they were able to do that because they were too busy lining their shots mm-hmm. up to be in screen and whatever. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you see that sometimes like it would take two people to work one character sometimes because you're working both arms and you have an arm up inside someone. And so it's an incredible amount of coordination. I wanted to talk about Big Bird. Mm -hmm. Carol Spinney is the guy's name who plays Big Bird. And Mm -hmm. I did not understand how Big Bird worked. He's in the costume and then his hand is the neck. Well, his arm is the neck and his hand is the head. And he works the beak by like, you know, kind of doing the sock puppet thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. Some kind of thing for the eyeballs. So they blink and like do expressions and he has to do that as well. How difficult, how heavy was that? Maybe he had just like one giant arm to do. It's just, again, it was stuff I hadn't thought of. And I was like, oh my right. gosh, what a lovely skill to have. So, and he does the voice. Yeah. It's just so cool. Well, when you see the drawing of it, because <laughs> they show a drawing of his arm all up the neck. And yes. Then, it's like, oh, okay. That's where we're going with this. And right. I think. How hot is that? (laughs) I mean, I like they show like rehearsing and they don't have the costumes on to rehearse and they don't even have the puppets really to rehearse, which is nice. Mm -hmm. But then you put it on and those lights are on and it just seems, it seems like it'd be hot. Again, I just, I had not considered the complexity of having to do Mm -hmm. a puppet. I think of marionettes and that looks hard, but I never had thought about the rest Anyway, it was a real education for me. Carol right. also does Oscar the Grouch. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, those are two very different characters. Polar opposites. And I liked the fact that they talked about Oscar was a really important character because they wanted kids to see that you could have opposing viewpoints with somebody. And you could still be friendly and cordial to somebody who was grouchy and not super mm-hmm. engaged or whatever. And that's right. realistic. There are those people in your neighborhood. And also, I love the costume because it's all matted and horrible, and <laughs> it just makes me so happy. That's how I feel going to work most days, matted and horrible. Right. And Oscars, all the things, you know, kind of represents all the things you shouldn't do as a kid. You shouldn't be nasty, and you shouldn't be selfish, and, you know, and yet here's a character that mm. somehow does it and is also lovable. So, it's cute. Right. We have Emilio Delgado, who is Luis. Mm-hmm. I like how he discusses that he had never seen TV, movie, any kind of representation that was positive for Latinos. So they were always playing gang members or drug dealers. And it's something that, as a white woman, I didn't think about, right? I'm represented everywhere. You don't think about how narrow that is until someone points it out, unfortunately. So he was excited to get this call and he could be, I don't know, just a a person who goes to work and has a family and is just living his life every day like everybody. Yeah. And he was like a business owner and some stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. then uh, really spoke to him and he was thrilled to be able to do that kind of in the (laughs) glary opposition to everything else. See, I mean, I think it was just tough to get parts at all something that was worthwhile and you could feel good about was really kind of special and on the show he is married to maria who we kind of talked about earlier which Mm -hmm. is really fun to see her in the show as well Mm -hmm. we have joe raposo Mm -hmm. he this man is a genius yeah right i mean he was the musical director he's a composer a lyricist Mm -hmm. And he would come up with songs that'd be like, listen, we need a song about the letter A mm-hmm. and we need it to be jazzy or whatever. <laughs> jazzy. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I could not think of a genre. Sorry. It probably was. That's exactly um, the criteria they gave him. He left the room for five minutes and came back with like yes. the best shit you've ever heard. It's crazy. It was so catchy. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then he sang the song. Like these are 
older snippets of interviews with him because he has passed, but mm-hmm. they showed the song of Grover, Grover going around, around, up, above, and below, and through. And it, right. <laughs> I'm sorry, he always cracks me up. Grover makes me oh, laugh. Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Because he's exhausted. Like, Grover's pissed. Listen, stop <laughs> making me exercise. And I can feel that deep in my soul. <laughs> I think he's got one of the best voices because it's like nothing I've ever heard. I think that's kind of the charm of Grover. I liked in the documentary, they showed the I'm an aardvark snippet. <laughs> and it's like this aardvark. And he's like, I'm an aardvark and I'm proud. And it's <laughs> so cute. And I'm just, again, it's just transports you right back. And you kind of get the the genius of this guy. He's also the reason that there is the song, It Ain't Easy Being Green. It ain't, yo. It ain't. The Kermit anthem, perhaps. Which I like. He was told, okay, what do they say? Kermit is, everything is always kind of loud and going on, but what happens when he's Mm -hmm. quiet and alone? And so this song kind of speaks to being alone and kind of sad and maybe quiet, but it also speaks to color and race. And it was just so Mm -hmm. deep for a children's song. You're like, dude, well done, sir. And a lot of people call back to this, like, they tried to make a lot of this fun for the children and educational, but also something that parents wouldn't want to claw their own eyes out when they had to watch. I'm going to tell you right now, this is my biggest piece of parental advice. Everybody else is like, oh, what love them when they're sleeping. And I'm like, be real careful what kind of kids shows and cartoons that you allow them (laughs) to get involved in because you're going to be stuck with it for years. And if you hate it. So Sesame Street kind of had the parents in mind. And so a lot of the jokes work on several different levels. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same way with it in Easy Being Green because it's a lot of depth, but also it's just an enjoyable little sweet song about a froggy talking about being green. So I thought that was really cute. Right. And I like how for Sesame Street, they talk about it with both Joe and John that they were very adamant that the kids would not be talked down to. Yeah. You treat kids like humans, like people. Mm -hmm. And you know, give them respect. And that's rare for kids. A lot of kids don't get that. Anywhere, right? At school, at home, really Mm -hmm. anywhere in your life. They are active participants in this. They're welcomed here and enjoyed. And and that's really sweet. Since we're kind of talking about music, I wanted to bring up Christopher Cerf. Mm -hmm. He's a composer as well. He does a little of the other bit pieces, which are like kind of parodies of other stuff. And they... (laughs) They show him uh, working on the song Letter B by the Beatles, uh, which is obviously a take off of Let It Be by the actual Beatles. And so they have Mm -hmm. these little bits and it's so cute. I don't know, just another example of musical genius in this show and Mm -hmm. how well it's received because people really enjoyed it. Because, of course, the kids aren't going to understand that. They're going to enjoy the the visuals Mm -hmm. and whatever. And it's a catchy tune, but it's really the parents are going to be like, oh, my God. It was really well done, right? I mean, that they sang the song and it was really well done. And then he said that was a $5 million lawsuit. And I thought, <laughs> listen, Paul, John, Ringo, the other one that no one can ever remember. George. We... <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> always, always one that you He's can't so remember, quiet. right? Okay, yeah. He's off being monkish. Okay. Yeah, playing the sitar. But mm-hmm. he, I'm like, guys, it's not like they're making money off this. It's not a commercial thing. Calm down. Kids are learning. It's fine. You made enough money. It's fine. A hundred percent. I really would have liked to have been on set to see some of this when they brought it around. Um, they right. do kind of talk at this point too about how much they worked. Yes. And that seems kind of crazy. Like this was a total grind. I mean, the people loved it. And I think that's why it, it came off the way it did. But they were constantly working Right. The kids, their kids talk about how their parents, their dads mostly never came home. Like they hardly ever saw them, which would be hard. Right. But I think that was a little more tolerable back then. That seemed more normal that the dads went away to work and spent a lot more time. Now being gone that much was not normal. Also Gilda Radner. She was in there too. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. She's she adorable. Was. I, they really got every single person ever has been on Sesame Street. They have clips, I mean, not in this documentary, but I've seen them mm-hmm. of like Robin Williams. And I all I could think when I see Robin Williams on anything is how long did that take? Because I love him, but he seemed like he was just so much and he would just give you five hours of 
of work for a two minute skit, right? <laughs> I mean, just the free association. Mm-hmm. I'm, I love to watch him, but I'm like, oh, I would be so tired. I get tired watching him. I know. I know. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. Can I just say to you one criticism of this? They don't talk about Mr. Snuffleupagus once. And that made me so Not sad once. because he is my favorite. And nobody ever got to see him. Like, he was a mystery. There was one shot yes. where they were, like, practicing and everyone had their, their costumes off yep. where you could see the bottom leg bit. <laughs> so, like, that's it. Yes. I can see from the knee down, Mr. Snuffleupagus. You know, we're talking about how the puppeteers work, and I'm like, was there just one person that controlled those big, long eyelashes? That of the eyelashes that we always talk about? Yeah. That's one person, and then one person for the nose, and one for the mouth. (laughs) I mean, that's a several-person job right there. (laughs) Just, Just a whole conglomerate of people to run that one guy. So, Norman Stiles, he's a head writer. I think what's interesting is he commented that Sesame Street was the only show hiring comedy writers other than the Johnny Carson show in New York. Those are the only two shows. Right. That seems difficult work to get, I guess, if that's what you're going for. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you raise an excellent, I mean, like who else? I mean, they, they were all just drama writers other than that, that occasionally got a funny in there. I guess, or maybe <laughs> because New York wasn't as big of a production place at the time. Mm-hmm. It was all in California at the time. I don't know when it, a lot of it moved out there. But he came up with The Count, and I love The Count. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Right. The whole thing's hilarious. It is. And it's funny because he was talking to the educators and he's like, well, I, I want to make the count and I want to count. And they're like, well, he can't just count. He has to count things. That's how kids make the connection. If you just count, mm-hmm. it's just random. It doesn't mean anything. You have to count stuff. And he's like, all right, I can dig it. He counted stuff. He counted bats. He counted fingers. Mm-hmm. And he just makes me so happy. I don't know what else there is to say about it. <laughs> I love the count. Me too. I would have said Mr. Snuffleupagus is my favorite, but I don't know the count. It's definitely a contender. Yeah. I'm just saying, yeah. I know. There are several amazing characters. There. <laughs> there really are. I was going to talk about Will Lee. Go for it. In 1982, Will Lee, who played Mr. Hooper, mm-hmm. actually passed away. Mm-hmm. They dealt with this, how do we handle his absence in this show? Mm-hmm. Right? And of course, everyone's like, oh, so you retired and moved out. I mean, if he hadn't retired by the age of 100 or whatever age he was in the show, then I think... <laughs> Seems a little odd. Anyway, but they're like, no, this is an opportunity for us to help children deal with death, Mm -hmm. right? So they talk to psychologists and they talk to everyone who might know anything and say, okay, what do kids who are ages three to five, what do they need to know about death? Mm -hmm. The first thing they need to know is that when someone dies, they never come back Mm -hmm. because it's a hard concept. The second thing was whatever you're feeling is okay. Right. Sad, angry, confused. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think they handled it really well. So Big Bird, they portray Big Bird as like a kid. Mm -hmm. Right. I think it's interesting that the first like six months or so, he was just kind of this goofy bird. But then they're like, listen. Yeah. He was kind of written Ophie. Carol, who's the the controller puppeteer, said, you know, I really think we're missing an opportunity here. Let's also make him a kid and he will be on the kids level and help them walk through some of this. Yeah. In this scenario all the people in the neighborhood are gathered together and they're talking about Mr. Hooper. And so Big Bird obviously doesn't get the concept that he has died. And even though they talk about he has died, Mm -hmm. Big Bird's like, oh, well, I'm going to show him this drawing I did when I see him again, when he comes back. And so they kind of Mm -hmm. have to, there's a very sweet kind of walking him through the process of death. Like he has died. He's not going to come back. Mm -hmm. Big Bird experiences that on camera. Like, sadness and the questions and you know he's asking the other people in the neighborhood and and they're explaining to him very patiently and you know he's showing emotions as much as a muppet can like a lot of like kind of hunching and like downward Mm -hmm. kind of portraying those um, emotions even though he can't cry but the other people are crying and i'm like then i was crying it was crazy (laughs) what the hell yeah it was and he says even though he can't show as much emotion, he does say the words. Like, yeah. I'm sad. I'm going to miss him. I don't understand. And mm-hmm. vocalizes those feelings that a lot of kids would have, but maybe not be able to vocalize. So I think they did a beautiful job with it. Right. It could not have been easy for any of them because they were also mourning their friend who in real life died. I think 
what a great opportunity. And that's a weird way to say that. They decided to take a leap of faith and say, Mm -hmm. we want children to have an experience with this. And instead of just doing, I think, what the the other option was just to kind of like gloss over it. Mm -hmm. They sent him upstate to live on a farm or whatever. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, that had to be difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that there were some parents that were like, what the fuck? But they did it anyway, which I thought was really cool. So yeah, because it's a hard subject to birch with your kid too. Mm -hmm. They might've made it easier to have that discussion with their kids. Mm -hmm. Man, death is a really interesting concept. Well, and at one point, at Big Bird is like, well, I don't understand why. Why does why does he have to die? Why do people have to die? And I think it was Gordon was like, well, because. Yeah, and they left it at that. Yeah, not some elaborate discussion. Mm-hmm. Just because. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was simple and, yeah. Really quite elegant. Well yeah, it was really mm-hmm. nice. <laughs> There's an interview with Joan and Jim Henson. Again, him talking as himself is really bizarre because he sounds just like Kermit. <laughs> And you're just like, this is not compute. Yeah. Right. And he talks about him and Frank who've been doing this even before Mm -hmm. Sesame Street. And he's like, you know, they'll be doing Bert and Ernie Ernie into their 80s and, you know, joking about Bert and Ernie being in rocking chairs and old. Yeah. But unfortunately, in May of 1990, Jim Henson does die at the age of 53. Right. I can't remember how. I think it was pneumonia. They didn't discuss it in this, and I didn't take the time mm-hmm. to look it up. I was too interested in his funeral. Like, they, they show a lot of the right. how the funeral went. <laughs> the Muppets are there, and it's like... Yeah, they are. It really makes a lot of sense that they did it this way, but it's sort of mm-hmm. surreal. Again, you're like, there's a very thin bit of... Con- like In only a few contexts, would this be okay? Right. Anyone else would have been super fucked up to have Muppets at your funeral. But Listen, um, I want Muppets at my fucking funeral is all I'm saying. Right. Big Bird mm-hmm. sings. He sings a little ditty and that's super sweet. And I thought he sings. Oh, it's not easy being green. I don't know. It's just such a great send off for such a special guy. Cause they talk about the energy on the show and the creative. They didn't really censure people. It was just like, what do you got? We'll try to work it in. And you know, in that kind of creative place that people really came up with some wild stuff and it worked and it was really neat and he I think was really the heart of all of that I can't imagine how difficult it would have been continuing without him right right Mm -hmm. how different the atmosphere would have been especially Mm -hmm. initially they often talk about they often that several people talk about that those were the happiest years of their lives the first couple years of Sesame Street it was just amazing John Stone's kids had said that he had depression mm-hmm. and had battled it essentially his whole life. But when yeah. he was on set, he could be happy. That was just like a whole different world for him. And it, he was allowed to be happy there for some reason. His brain mm-hmm. allowed him to be happy there. So yeah. I thought that was very sweet. I also thought it was interesting about John Stone that he, that so Joan got a lot of the credit for this show. I mean, she was a huge part of it, but I think that there was some, not resentment, but I think that he, John Stone, wanted some more of the credit. Like he wish nobody knows his name, right? Until, you know, Jim Henson and, and those kinds of people. But I, I think that maybe he mm-hmm. was sort of left off some of the major credits. So I was really glad in this that his contributions were really called out. And I thought that was really right. cool. Especially because he was the heart of it, especially initially. He created mm-hmm. that atmosphere. And your off camera people, I mean, they have a huge role, but again, it's the on-screen people that everybody identifies with, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's interesting that Jim Henson and Frank Oz are so well-known, mm-hmm. but it's because I think they did so many different things together, or just in general, Frank, uh, not Frank Oz, but Jim Henson had a lot to do with, say, Labyrinth and yeah, other things, right, I that mean, that are very mainstream. Yeah, The Muppet Show and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and like his name was in some of the titles of things, like Jim Henson's mm-hmm. Muppet Babies, you know. Um, right, right. But I mean, maybe he did that on purpose because he was tired of, you know, I mean, these are just things I'm supposing. I don't know that for a fact. But, you know, he marketed himself eventually in that way because I had not heard Frank Oz's name before I watched this. So I was glad to see that he got the credit because Bert. I have, but I'm. Okay. 
Just Bert. <laughs> I'm trying That's to all think. Bert. I'm trying to think of what else he was in, but I know Frank Oz was. I know that name is. That's it. He's Yoda. <laughs> well, color me surprised. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> another great uh, character to ones, be associated yeah. with. Yeah. Among the most famous, yeah. then. At least he's a Yoda. I don't know if he's all the Yodas, but um, he's done <laughs> voice work and mm-hmm. a ton of cartoons and stuff, too. So, yeah, I I knew his name. I didn't necessarily associate mm-hmm. him with this. So, yeah, and you're behind. You're not in front of the screen. So right. nobody knows what you right. look like. Nobody knows your name, right? So, mm-hmm. But then you can still go to the grocery store. You can be famous and still go to the grocery store. So that's like the best of both worlds, I think, maybe. It's really entertaining. And can I say, again, the footage that they showed of all these dudes in their 70s, haircuts and beards and butterfly collared shirts and like yep. big ass glasses. Yep. It is hysterical. <laughs> it is so fun to see it. Yeah, And like I said, just kind of that behind the scenes bit of them half muppeted up and they're like having fun. And it's just, I don't know, it just it looks like an adult's playground, right? Like they're just having a blast right. with other creative right. people. And then they're producing something that's getting, you know, um, is it effective in their, in their goals? It's matching up nicely with what they're trying to do. And then it's, it's also famous. It's also getting crazy accolades. So, I mean, I can't imagine mm-hmm. how gratifying that would have been for them. So, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of where it closes. Mm-hmm. Just people sure. talking about how, you know, it was, it was a great experience and everyone was at the right place at the right time and it just worked out. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Seemed really cool. I am very impressed with our puppet bent here because we did Guara last week, which was puppets. And now we're doing this one, which is puppets. But next true, week we're going to take a slight departure and not do puppets, but we are going to do something happy. Listen, I've not seen it yet. There might be puppets in it. We don't know. Ooh, that's true. What if puppets are how you get happy? We'll find out. I guess we'll find we will. out. What are we doing next week? So we're going to do Happy, released in 2012. The director is Rocco Bellic. This one's an hour mm-hmm. and 16 minutes. We found it, I believe, on Tubi, and also you can get it on Prime Video, but you have to throw a couple of dollars at them to let, so they'll let you watch it. And I believe that it is a collection of stories or whatever some evidence evidence is not the right word but it's a portrayal of what really makes people happy in different variety you know in different settings and different um cultures like really what is the mm-hmm. heart of happiness and how you attain that and also then probably what doesn't make you happy i'm gonna guess it's money but we'll see having some money helps but <laughs> and an excess maybe not i don't know i mm-hmm. i don't know that i'll ever know so <laughs> right i mean you know again if you want We'll try the Brewster's Millions approach, and we'll see. Absolutely, we'll see how, we, how far we get. So yeah. anyway, yeah, we're um, we're gonna try this one and, and see. I've read some interesting reviews, some good reviews, and then a couple weird ones where I was like, "Are you okay, person who writes?" <laughs> like, "You're right." <laughs> so, uh, we'll yeah. uh, we'll give you our in depth review next week. Um, beyond that, mm-hmm. we'll ask you to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Go Doc Yourself. And uh, thanks for joining us today. It was fun for me. Yes, this was a delightful documentary, and it was a fun episode. So I hope you guys liked it. And Agreed. we will talk to you next week. All right, later. Bye. It's a destination when we meet again.